Hello and welcome to Future Building. I'm Matthew Aitchison and I'm professor at Monash University and CEO of Building 4.0 CRC, a cooperative R&D hub for the building industry. In this podcast, we take a broad look at buildings and building in contemporary society and what's coming down the pipeline in the future. In upcoming episodes, we'll talk with invited guests and experts in the field where we'll cover news and trends along with research and developments in the industry. In this episode, I'm speaking with Bill Rue, CEO of Lendlease Digital. Bill is certainly a friend of the podcast. Many of you may have heard his excellent recent interview with Jeff Immel. In this interview, I've invited Bill back to talk more about digital transformation in the building industry as part of his new company, Lendlease Digital. Lendlease, the global development, construction and investment firm, launched Lendlease Digital in 2019 to lead the company's digital efforts. And Bill joined the company at the same time as its inaugural CEO. Lendlease Digital's work is now at the front line of digital transformation in building. But Bill himself is not of building as such. As I mentioned, Bill came to the building sector after many years at the helm of GE Digital who he had joined in 2011 to run the digital transformation efforts of that industrial giant. Before that, Bill worked as a senior executive at Cisco. In many ways, Bill is emblematic of a new generation of leaders in the building industry. This group are not native to construction or property specialists. And I think that tends to be a sign that the industry is mature and moving towards its inevitable digital future. A disclosure, Lendlease Digital are a partner in Building 4.0 CRC, which sponsors this podcast, and Bill sits on our board at Building 4.0 CRC. I hope you enjoy our interview as much as I did. I spoke with Bill in April 2022 from his home in Sydney. Bill, welcome to the show. As we heard in the introduction, you've got a storied history in digital transformation. I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your work at GE and prior to that at Cisco? It's been almost 20 years since I started at Cisco. And um, I I think that's where the real, I saw the real movement towards uh, digital transformation. We're talking about the early 2000s. And and I think the internet was beginning to take off. You know, uh, what was really happening at that time, uh, and especially, you know, Cisco led that, is, you know, the network was becoming the center point of interactions. And so it was beyond email and beyond just accessing information, you were you found that there was an increasing set of interactions and use of that technology. Things we take for granted today. People take for granted their phones uh, run on the internet. They, you know, they they take for granted, uh, you know, their applications uh, being online. In those days, you know, that was just at the very beginning of, of what was happening. And I think it was really led by two things. One is we saw a transformation in the telecommunications industry. And I can remember when uh, John Chambers uh, made a comment about the movement of telephony to uh, IP networks and the industry you know, howled at that because you know, that was a complete change of where they were. But it turns out it was true, right? So you, you know, that changed everything and it changed the communication structure. The second one was we saw the early days of media and retail happening. And people forget that Netflix in those days was, they would mail you CDs or DVDs, right? They weren't an online service, but they, they made that shift. 
And Google, you know, was making the shift into advertising and and Amazon was beginning to not be a bookseller, but an Am- but Amazon A to Z, right? So I think this idea of digital transformation in those days started out with uh, telecom and uh, media and retail. And it just so happened, Cisco was at the center point of that. What when I went to GE, it was it became obvious there was a series of dominoes falling in the world. And what that means is suddenly every industry was being impacted. And it really came down to, you know, the, the, the technology getting to a low enough cost to support that industry. So once we moved from, uh, you know, networking becoming cheap and communications being cheap and interactions becoming cheap, and then we moved into the next phase where the suddenly connecting devices became cheap and, and you know, then suddenly managing lots of data and analytics became cheap. Um, you know, the industry, each industry fell like a domino into manufacturing, aerospace. I think the, the, and that's what I saw at GE is their industries, aerospace, manufacturing, uh, power generation, uh, all of these, uh, these industries were ripe for transformation because the cost of the technology had come down and data costs had come down. And, and, you know, for this, one of the areas you and I love right now, we're finally seeing the cost of technology come down for the, for the industry we love because the idea of the built environment, property investment and development, you know, really hasn't been impacted by technology, but the cost of processing the cloud, the use of data, the ability to interact is finally coming together for us to be able to automate more design, to create the kinds of systems allow the interaction of communities to build these really massive, complex, bespoke, uh, you know, uh, game-changing uh, buildings in downtown areas and so on. So I think it's uh, we're just at the right place at the right time. So the technology's there. The the you know you can't stop it, but the 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 second thing is the data's there and the cost profile finally reaches a tipping point to make every industry eventually transform. You raised some really interesting points and I, I like the, the domino uh, analogy because the domino uh, sort of stopped, didn't it, when it got to building a little bit as the last sort of great sector, you might say. Um, and I was reflecting on that this morning uh, as I was preparing for the podcast, Bill, and thinking about what you found when you joined uh, GE in 2011 and maybe what you've found in building in 2019. Uh, in many ways, I, I don't know whether I'm speaking with, with any specific expertise here, but I can imagine that if we think about Industry 4.0, GE was probably very much at the 3.0 uh, point when, when you joined uh, and, and you took it into the 4.0 um, uh, realm. Where do you think building is uh, on that scale. Yeah, I think that when I joined in 2011, you know, nobody really talked about internet of things and connecting devices. In fact, people were afraid of doing it. What was funny though, is many of them didn't realize they were connecting devices and just didn't even know it was connected, right? Um, But we didn't, you know, the business people hadn't really yet understood the power of data coming off machines and the ability to utilize that 
to get insights that drove not only efficiency and productivity, but were game-changing to getting the value out of these industries, right? And opening up new business models and new ways to think about things. And I think the, the other thing that has occurred on this is they also didn't think about, um, you know, you get comfortable with your old business model. And what comes along with this is a change in the way we work and the business model. So once you go down this, you are rethinking your business models in many ways. Um, and so, for example, everybody talks about data monetization, but you have to actually figure that out in order to figure out how to make yourself transform. And so we had to invent all that. And it's no different in our industry. If you think about it, uh, the way we work between the developer, the investor, the landowner, the the construction firm, the architect, the engineering firm, the myriad of other consultants, uh, the asset managers, um, you bring all that together and you, you know, we have a very complex model. And that's, I think, really the more, the more difficult thing, because when I was a GE, at least the model, you didn't have so many participants in the ecosystem who had to agree on a lot. So for us, it was actually, it was, it was hard because we were inventing IoT. We were inventing the idea of chief digital officers. We were inventing the idea of physical and digital interactions. We were inventing a lot of data monetization in the physical world where that was not true, uh, where, you know, but we had less participants in, in our world, but just the sheer volume of participants and the business models, the physical business models are not easy to adjust because you need so many people to agree that it's it's uh, it, it really is hard. Uh, look, I completely agree, and I think that's you've identified one of the the key barriers there, Bill, to uh, innovation in in building is just the sheer number of hands and spoons, as as it were, in the pot. Uh, turning now to your your day job, <laughs> which is Landlease Digital, I wonder if you could just give us some insights into what the company is about, why it was founded, um, and maybe just outline some of its core products. Yeah, you know, it was founded, you know, uh, a long time ago. I think uh, I think we're getting, you know, it's right around that seventy year time frame. Uh, came out of a lot of famous projects uh, here in Sydney, the Opera House, and a a number of other, let's say, uh, game-changing high-rises in the CBD. and um, But it, it was really a construction firm, but with strong, let's say, desires to continue to change the built environment. So eventually, you know, it didn't take long before they were an investment management firm and a development firm and an asset, and had asset management. And, and that's because they realized the power of, of being across all those things rather than any one individual was that you could have a greater influence in changing how things were built. And, and they, in the early days, sustainability was built in this company 60 years ago by the founder. And they were talking about, you know, triple net, meaning, you know, what do you give back to the community? What do you give to the shareholders? What do you give to the employees when that wasn't cool to be talking about? So the, the fact is, I think we're two things this company really pioneered. One was uh, this idea of you have to take a broader social 
uh, view combined with making money. And by the way, they're intricately uh, interconnected and you can make money by doing good. Uh, but I think the second thing is this integrated model was, uh, was really something that uh, is game changing. And as a result, you know, Lendley's is in many ways a unique company, which is what attracted me uh, to it is that integrated model opens up a lot of opportunities to rethink, you know, the built environment. So, you know, it's an innovative company. You got this integrated model. I think it's therefore going back to what we talked about a second ago, it's so hard to, to, to change this market just because the sheer volume is a player. Our integrated model allows us to see this in a little more clarity. And we're not one element. We can be multiple elements. And as a result, I think, you know, we're in a unique position to help to change the world. And I think people look to us for that because, you know, clearly like our Barangaroo precinct here, you know, is world-class, it's sustainable. It's got a lot of technology in it. Uh, you know, that ability to do a project of that scale, of that uh, forward-leading uh, in all the things that people talk about, um, we've shown we can do it. And then we innovate. And now we're figuring out, okay, given we've innovated, how do you take it to the world? And that's why I'm here, because that, that's what is at the center point of who we are. So, Bill, a long line of innovations with Landlease Digital standing at the end. One of the key products to come out of Landlease Digital in the last three years is obviously the Podium platform. Could you tell us a little bit about Podium? Yeah, you know, I think um, if you if you think about Len Lease being at the leading edge, digital, you know, we see that digital is going to be an ever increasing requirement for any for anybody in the development and uh, you know property management business. Um, so the domino, as we talked about previously, is starting to fall, and it's interesting. You know, a domino takes about 10 years to fully take effect, right? It's everybody thinks you're transforming a couple of years, and that's just not true. It, it all industries have gone through about a 10 year cycle before they finally get to achieving the value that they're looking for. So, ours, I would say, we're in the early cycles of this. We see this. If you think about the problems we face in the, in the world we're in, um, you know, people are dealing with uh, more complexity than ever before. So think about it. Sustainability has to be built in. Uh, sustainable, healthy environments are the future. Uh, you're going to have to prove it. You take it all the way from the suppliers into your operations. Uh, as you build, you, you can take, a, you take another look at affordability. And that doesn't mean affordable housing, but just affordability for the middle class even. We've got to find ways to bend that curve. We can't continue to see the cost rise. And we're in an inflationary environment with supply chain problems. We've got to bend that curve. And which, again, if we don't do that, we'll face a lack of housing in, in the entire world that we're going to have to deal with um, you know, in the next decade. I think you also see labor shortages in, in construction workers all over the world. I, in the U.S. alone, I think... They're, they're missing 2 million uh, people in the labor market. I think that's true here in Australia. I think that's true everywhere. And so, you know, we're not getting rid of construction people or we're not going to see that go down. What we've got to do is make sure we make those, those areas as efficient as possible. So for everyone who's in, 
that they, uh, you know, we can do all the work that's necessary. So you begin to look, it's just, and, and, you know, and then you add the supply chain into this. It's just becoming too complex for people to manage on a spreadsheet or a piece of paper anymore. And, and BIM and, and the CAD tools, et cetera, well, they've been good hygiene to getting us moving along. They're not enough. And so for us, Podium is the early stages of addressing generative design and automated supply chain. Those are, we've got to get to the ability to use that capability to orchestrate the, the ecosystem. And it's got to be an orchestration of the ecosystem, not a, we do, we the, the, the ecosystem goes away and replaces it. It's orchestration of the ecosystem. So we really focus on this idea of podium for development that's aimed at how do you orchestrate the ecosystem? How do you bring generative design in? How do you bring kits of parts, volumetric design and automate the supply chain and the design so that all these come together in a way that you get a bet, you get a better design tied to the reality of what you need to build with a fidelity that we've never achieved before to take out really just all the friction that occurs from design to construction. I think that's one. The second thing we're working on is this idea of a platform for making the spaces that we live and breathe in more make more sense. Now, what do I mean by that? Look, it, you know, COVID really has just accelerated this, but you know, we are struggling to figure out what's the right balance of going into the office versus working from home or working from anywhere, right? And I think that the we're going to have to deal with with getting people back in the office because we're, I think culture of companies is being lost. Um, people aren't getting the training and leadership that comes every day with being around your leadership. The We're finding that people, um, you know, while they're, they're certainly productive, there's no issue of being productive, but, you know, the creative piece is getting lost. So I don't think we're going to go back to five days a week in the office, but zero days isn't going to work either. So the question is, how do you get people back in the office? How do you create an environment that is desirable? It's not desks and desktop booking and sitting in front of a screen at the office, which is a terrible experience. It's that the office has to be changed to be more productive for when you're in there to complement work from home. And when you're in the office, you need to create experiences for people that it's not the old days of, well, I'll put a pool table in or you know whatever I did, but you know, what do I do to make it more productive for people to be interactive, to be creative? And then, you know, how do I know the programs I'm putting in place? So if I have free lunch Friday, does it actually work? Do people care about that? And if they don't, let's not do that. What do they care about? Maybe they care about, gee, I just want more healthy snacks every day. You know, that's what I want to see. So I think you take that idea of workplace and, the, and we really look at, can you look at the employee and figure out, you know, certainly you want to know about utilization of the space and, the, and, and are you efficient? But more importantly, how do, you re, how do you in real time adjust your space to embrace the idea that you want your employees to make sure that they feel productive, they feel 
that they're having a great experience and they want to come in to balance work from home with coming in. So that workplace experience, the idea that we can use data to drive that, employee sentiment to drive that, video to drive that, not to assess how productive people are, to figure out how to make people more productive and want to be in that environment. And if you think about that, that translates to physical retail. Isn't that what you're trying to do with physical retail? Are people trying to be, uh, is the space productive? Is the experience is productive? What can I do to make physical retail more enticing? A sporting event, again, when people show up, are they happy? Are they finding the experience? If you think about it, every space from a works, a standard white collar office to a retail setting, to a sporting event, to a hospital, you're putting the person at the center, trying to figure out how do you make the space and the experience more what they're looking for? How do you learn in retail constantly evolving so the investment in space is maximized to business outcomes? And I think that is going to be the holy grail 10 years from now is using data to create experiences and spaces that are more productive for people, healthier, more sustainable. And yes, by the way, we'll figure out, do I have too much space? Do I have not enough space? You know, am I configured right? Those are, that's table stakes. It's really getting to these, how do I make the experience better? And, and Bill, on that, uh, I, I think, I think you're spot on, you know, with the, the, the two arms of, um, of activity there, one to orchestrate this new ecosystem and second to, to really focus on, I guess, quality and experience and, and using the technology and the new systems to, to enrich life and productivity and, and, and meaning. I think that's really interesting. Do you see any competitors in the world for this? Oh, I think there's uh, the good news. Some people might call it the bad news. The, the good news is there's a ton of competitors. You know, you have a market when you're not the only one in it. If, if you're the only, you know, if you're the only one in it, you know, is it a good, is it actually a good idea? And so, you know, uh, and, you know, I was often told by, uh, you know, my, some of the CEOs I've worked for in the past, being early is the same as being late. <laughs> you know, you, t- timing is everything. So you're, you know, but the good news here is I think timing is, is spot on because I am seeing in both cases a lot of uh, substitutes and direct competitors. So let's talk about generative design. There's a lot of different approaches coming out. I think what we're seeing is, is uh, a lot of volumetric companies come out, right? People with very interesting kit parts or pre-manufactured uh, capabilities, volumetric to drive costs down and really uh, you know, automate more of the design in the process. Um, I think they often, you know, you, you have to buy into their approach, but they believe they're driving real change in that market. You have a lot of people who are, you know, you've got a lot of technology to automate and build digital twins or do generative design. So, you know, Grasshopper is a good example of a technology that's come along to help to to enable more of this ability for us to do the modeling. Um, so we see, we see a lot of technology, a lot of startups in, in areas, um, and a lot of funding going into this kind of uh, prop tech area. On the, um, on the workplace side, I see a ton of different approaches. Again, you've got companies who are building 
and, and they say, you know, you buy our sensors and you put them in every building and you get all of this in our, and so they, they can control the whole ecosystem and provide fidelity, but it's their sensors or, you know, the highway, right? Um, I think there are, are uh, people who are attacking piece of the problem for lighting or uh, better HVAC, you know, a, a nest for the, you know, commercial world kind of thing. Um, so everybody is looking at data coming out of buildings and trying to figure out how to use it more efficiently and effectively. Uh, and that's good news again. And, and then finally, I think uh, it's, it's exciting to see how much money is going into prop tech by the venture capital world. It is off the charts. And I really love that because now you're in a market. So the bad news is, yeah, there's competition. The good news is we're early days of figuring it out. And in any market, the early days are lots of investment, lots of startups, lots of good ideas, and the market will figure it out. And so for us, podium for development in this generative design is, you know, we're, we, we see, uh, we think we got a good solution. Podium property insights, we think we have a good solution. Uh, we know there are competitors, but we also know how we differentiate. And now it's just a race to see, you know, whose differentiation is going to carry the day. Bill, I'll just pick up on a, on a point you raised there about the influx of funding specifically into prop tech. Uh, reminded me of, a, of an interview I was listening to the other day with the uh, CEO of Airbnb, Brian Chesky, where uh, he said multiple times throughout the interview when asked about the future of the business, uh, we don't pour concrete, we don't pour concrete. And, and it strikes me that, that uh, within the entire sector of building, prop tech is certainly, I'm not going to say it's low hanging fruit, but it's lower hanging fruit than, than the concrete because somebody has to pour the concrete, you know, metaphorically speaking. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about construction technology investment. Anybody who gets in this game has to make a foundational decision. Um, capital light, capital heavy into prop tech, right? Um, you know, there are, and, and there are people doing both, right? Um, and again, it's hard to tell who's going to win. In our industry, we love physical things. It's a capital heavy market. So if we, you know, there are people inventing, you know, uh, carbon friendly concrete. Well, somebody's going to have to manufacture, got to build a manufacturing facility. We know that uh, many of the manufacturers in mass timber you know, are allowing, you know, design for automation capabilities so that you design it, comes in and they ship you a beam that's pre-configured exactly as you need it. And so uh, those are capital heavy uh, approaches and those have benefit. I think capital light approaches are, okay, we are going to be software only and, and that we're going to, like I said, either orchestrate or automate aspects of that. Um, and by the way, both take a lot of investment and automation is really hard. Like it's easier to do the capital heavy model because it's more predictable, assuming you've developed the technology you need. On the automation side, you know, automation, and we're talking about full, absolute, trustworthy automation, takes a lot of time and energy and you have to deal with a lot of complexity. So I think, you know, there's pros and cons to both of those. The reality is we're going to have both. So 
people who do capital light and generative design are going to want to work with the mass timber or the concrete guys to make sure that that's part and parcel of the solution. And the good news is I see both going forward. So I think this idea of, oh, we don't pour concrete in our world, that's not very interesting. I think in our world, when we think about the future, it's got to be the physical and digital world coming together in a meaningful way. And that's what I learned at GE. Magic only occurred when both of those work in tandem and not one dominating over the other. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, Bill. And um, in the introduction, I, I raised the point that some listeners may have heard your recent interview with Jeffrey Melt, where the interplay between digital and physical worlds was 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 one of the key points that I, I took away. Uh, thinking about that, uh, what do you think we can learn uh, about digital transformation from looking at other industries like telecom, media, manufacturing, automotive, aerospace, shipbuilding, for that matter? Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, we are, that's the domino effect, right? You're actually building on them, but there's something else unique that's come along to tip your domino over. Um, so when you, when you think about what we, we learn, well, what do we learn out of the, the first sort of wave of transformations, telecom, media, retail, was, you know, that, uh, well, I, I think in any case, you, we did learn that 10 years is sort of a magic time to actually see the impact occur. But, you know, what we learned from those early days is, uh, is the idea that you, you really have to uh, reimagine the process, right, around a digital process. And I think we've got to get comfortable moving from a 2D environment into a, a digital environment. And CAD is not, well, CAD is digital. You still get a 2D diagram by the end of the day. And, you know, why BIM is digital you're, and you need it. It's just that it's not, you just, it's not getting you into a full digital environment. So we've got to get comfortable with People are going to be mobile on their phones, using applications in new and different ways. And if we don't, if all we do is take the old way and try to bring it into the new way, it doesn't work. But if you challenge the old way and bring a digital interface, easy to use, mobile together, that's when you win. I think the, what we learned from sort of the second big wave, like the manufacturing, the aerospace, uh, shipbuilding, is... IOT matters. The more, the more you connect and the more data you have, the more you win. Um, and it's really hard because, you know, people get uncomfortable with this idea. I don't know what I'm going to do with all this data. <laughs> but what's clear is companies like Google and Facebook, they, you know, hoover up the data. Airbnb loves to hoover up the data because that's how they figure out how to to you know, get the right pricing and change the beat the competition, etc. So those who have more data win, and I think that's what we're seeing in the second wave. Now in our wave, I think the difference is we the the the, the industries in our wave all have much more complex ecosystems, and what we're having to invent is how do you bring the ecosystem together so that their interests all align versus their interests don't align because it won't work until their interests align. They're not going to change the way they work like we learned in the first. They're not going to share data or connect in the right way. They're not going to use data to make decisions. 
unless we show them the way. Then, by the way, even if you did all that, you got to figure out how to connect them where everybody wins or you lose. And I think that's what we're having to invent today. On that note, having uh, worked in those other sectors yourself, Bill, could you reflect on the cultures of innovation that you've found uh, relative to what, what you're working with now in the last three years in, in building? Every industry struggles with this. So that we're no different. I heard a, an interesting talk by someone who was at Blockbuster, the, you know, it used to be the rental. And he was part of the discussion of do they acquire Netflix? which they eventually decided not to acquire. And the price of Netflix at that point was like two, $300 million. And then you look back and you go, what are you crazy? Why didn't you do that? And it's because they, they talked themselves into the fact that for some reason, point of presence was more important than mailing, but they missed the point of online. And they thought, well, online really gets in my way because I love our, what makes us different is we have all these stores. Interestingly enough, I think they, the last store is just closed up or is getting ready to close up the Blockbuster. Um, Kodak, you know, make all its money on developing film and, 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 and manufacturing film, yet they owned a lot of the core digital photography patents and technology, and they never figured out how to capture it because they couldn't figure out where the film went in the camera and they couldn't figure out how they were going to make money in subscription processing of film. Right. So every industry giants make, have an un and the innovators dilemma is a great book by Clayton Christensen. It basically explains every industry struggles with innovation. Um, you do have to have a disruptor and you have to have a culture that will enable the disruptor to make enough progress to uh, to solidify that disruption. And by the way, sometimes that's an external force. Take electric vehicles. Left to the, you know, left to the market, we would never see the Toyotas, the Fords, the, the GMs, the, the you know, Mercedes of the world delivering as many electronic electric vehicles as they do today and making such a commitment to that and autonomous vehicles had not Tesla existed. I, I believe that. I mean, of course, we can't prove that, but I think they were the disruptor that proved it out enough that everybody was able to say, oh, I'll be a fast follower. So you can either have an external disruptor that is important and big enough to make a difference. And by the way, think about this. Tesla's like coming on 20 years, and it's only in the last five to 10 that has had the impact to the rest of the market. So the first 10 years, everybody poo-pooed them. And then the next five years, everybody scratched their head and, and probably looked at them. And then they, they finally said, oh, well, yeah, there is something here. So it, it's not an overnight in that way. Uh, the other is that you get disruptors at the top of companies who decide to push things and uh, foster them in the company. And, um, and again, we see plenty of models of where you see that happen. I think, you know, certainly Tesla is no longer a, you know, a startup. It's a it's a company that is into a lot of things, battery factories, et cetera. So you have, you have you know, a company that actually forced it, but you also have a company that's gotten a batteries and, and you know, Elon Musk now says his robotics arm may be more profitable than his, uh, than his automotive arm. And, and so he's internally disrupting himself 
And uh, by the way, I think that's the harder one because it really comes from the top and it, it often undercuts your, your existing business model. And by the way, your investors rarely want you to be the disruptor. If you think about what, what do they want? Could you just deliver me the, you know, the earnings and I'd like no risk and I don't want to write anything off. So, you know, it's hard to be the internal disruptor. It's uh, easier to follow the external disruptor uh, because you'll get a little bit of credit for it. But it's just the nature of the beast at this point. And it's funny you say that, Bill, because we like uh, people like me that come from internal to, to this industry. We like to decry the lack of patience and the lack of foresight in, in building and construction. And, and, and here you are telling us it's the same in, in, in every other industry. And, and I think by and large, you're right. How have you found those um, changes, say, between your time at GE, where Jeff was recently yeah. talking about a 10-year cycle for a payback on some industrial tech? Yeah. Uh, what, what are, what's your experience in, in building yeah, I think we have some, uh, We have, as I said, I think we have all the same challenges every industry has. Uh, the external forces, though, that I described earlier are just, are, are going to be unbearable. Affordability and a new way to deal with both affordable, low-cost housing and affordable housing, that is, that is a game changer. Sustainability, a game changer. We're not going to get there without this kind of technology. So I think you've got, the momentum where people are finally recognize it, then they just don't know exactly what to do yet. Um, and that's a, that's a great opportunity. And that's why you see all this prop tech money coming into everybody saying, I know what to do. Um, but we still haven't figured that out. I think uh, the thing, the only thing I see is that there, we have some unique challenges that we are a, we have a higher, or excuse me, we have a lower risk tolerance. We want zero risk in our industry. Whereas every other industry that's that's fallen, their risk tolerance has been much higher. You heard that from Jeff. So we just don't want to take that kind of risk over that period of time in the in, in the industries we're in because many of the, the investors aren't comfortable yeah. with it. So you you have to balance that out. I think the second thing is safety in our industry is paramount. Now that is paramount in manufacturing as well, but I think our industry is just generally more complex. Um, for safety. So when you add those things in, you know, you find that it, you don't want to change because your risk appetite and your safety appetite need to be balanced in a new, in a, in a more complex way than before. And then the last thing is we've talked about this is there's just so many people have to be involved with building anything complex. Uh, And, you know, we're not single family homes on large Lots are not the future for sustainability. So we're going to build more multifamily residence. It's the only way to get affordability. It's the only way to get sustainability. And those things are complex. And when you start to have that complexity there and a lot of people involved and, you know, the regulatory environment, uh, fire, you have new materials that people don't quite trust. You want to go with what you do trust. It's just, it slows us down. But I'd, I'd say this, I don't think it's, it's not like we're Neanderthals. That's not true. I think, you know, I've heard that, but it's not true. I don't think though we're able to deal with the risk complexity. People, people then say it's just too hard. And then, but I actually have hope for the first time 
because the amount of investment and so the externals are going to be there to drive change. On the other hand, I think there are some internals and, you know, there are many people in our industry of good venture funds. Um, there's some really first-class organizations who are investing like Lend-Lease. These are going to be the rabbits that everybody will chase. So for the first time ever, I think we've got rabbits to chase, but um, we still have these, I think, barriers to making it successful. Yeah. I mean, they're really chunky issues here, the safety the burgeoning complexity, the productivity challenges, sustainability, affordability, the, the regulatory environments, the sheer number of people. These are really uh, chunky, big, important issues that no one can wave a hand and will simply disappear. They are they're going to take time. And I guess that brings me to my, my next question, which is... Um, what is then it going to take to transition our industry to become more digital? And how could in that framework uh, technology, specific technologies and the use of data analytics and AI, for example, play a role in that bill? Yeah. Look, I think there are three things that have to happen. One is there just has to be enough proof points, early proof points by industry leaders of constructing things that you can control the risk on you might not get the same returns on, but you prove out that this is is happening. I think we've seen some of that, like uh, what is it, the Ark in um, in the Netherlands, and you see pro projects that are trying to be innovative out there. Um, but we don't have enough of that, and I don't think we have enough of the what I call the practical ones. Um, we need more practical, you know, eight story, twelve story residential multi use you know, examples that show you can do this at scale. I think the second thing is the government can help or they can hurt. They can either keep regulations the way they are and stop it, or they can bring the regulations forward that say, I want you to use digital twin twinning technology. The UK, in my mind, has really been a leader in this area. Uh, I start, I see, you know, grass sprouting up here in Australia related to it. Um, you know, I think the geospatial work here in digital twins in the government has been nothing short of spectacular. Uh, but I think that they need the regulations to start to drive towards a driving the digital framework of what we need. The last thing is, um, it's what you said, we need to run these businesses based on data and analytics that start to say, I mean, are we really reducing the risk by doing things the old way or are we fooling ourselves and we can reduce the risk in new ways? But the only way to do that is data to show that the, the new ways actually have the value of reducing risk. And I think if you end up with those three, it'll be fine. I, I'd also throw one other thing. You know what? I love the fact that investors now are saying, if you're not sustainable, I'm not investing in you. Mm. And, you know, you, you hear, you know, Larry Fink um, from BlackRock talking about sustainability. If you don't have a sustainability in your program, you know, you're not someone we'd invest in or we, we you know, you're, you're not going to be investable over the long haul. Uh, those are my words of reading it. But I think that he's trying to convey the importance of that being part of the program. We need to convey that but we've got to convey this whole digitization 
practically as well through those other mechanisms. Yeah. Bill, one of the things I find particularly interesting about your work at Lendlease Digital is the what I'm going to call the, the scope and scale of innovation that you've chosen. Um, you were talking before about prop tech and the, the influx of funding. Um, a lot of the small companies that I've seen are developing point solutions that solve a particular problem. Uh, on the same hand, we've seen recently a very large company in the shape of Katera that was very well financed uh, fall over. Uh, and it raised the question for me, what is the right scope and scale uh, to set our innovation and R&D horizons, right? How, how big or how small should it be? Uh, what, what are your thoughts about that and how do you think about that in directing strategy at Lendlease Digital? Look, I think, uh, you know, not every startup is a success. I mean, and, and there's a Pareto model skewed to the right. There's only a few that actually are the, you know, we, we think everybody's a multi-billion dollar firm, but it's just not true, right? Uh, most of them become cannon fodder to be acquired and so on. So I think that, you know, the we're, at, we're still in the early phases. I think Katera had a big vision. Um, I think that the, you know, I, I think it was um, the vision. It's not, they, they shared a vision to deal with everything we talked about. Um, but it's like anything else, the way they went about it, the market decided that wasn't the way they wanted to, to do it. I think the, the key I'd go back to is they were dealing with the ecosystem, right? And basically they said, okay, we're going to primarily get rid of a lot of the ecosystem to streamline it. So you have more control over it. So we'll, we'll have less people involved or the people who are involved will be more, let's say, integrated together. And you don't have to get everybody to say yes, because you only need two people to say yes, the developer and Katera. And I think that the way I looked at it, that they were trying to deal with that, but it, that wasn't the way people wanted to buy, right? And, um, and so I think that was, in my view, anybody who doesn't figure out the ecosystem doesn't, doesn't win. Uh, but we, so that's, I just would keep harping on that because people, you cannot fight the ecosystem, right? Um, you need to figure out how to play in, in with it, you know? And I think Google, for example, on advertising, they figured out how to play into it where the advertisers had to participate. The, you know, Steve Jobs figured out how to drive the music industry to have to participate, but he didn't, you know, he may have changed the profitability of them, but he didn't change the ecosystem uh, he, he figured out how to drive the ecosystem to efficiency. And I think we still haven't figured that out as an industry. On the, on the, the, the reality is a lot of the startups we see are dealing with point problems, right? Why? Because they only have so much money and this is an expensive problem. And I don't think anybody has an appetite to put multiple billions to see what happens. So, you know, I think, you know, we're, it, what you'll see is some of these startups will, will attack a niche. And we're already starting to see acquisitions and M&A pickup where if you can figure out a piece of it, some bigger fish is coming along and bringing you to, into to create a bigger capability. And I think that's really what's going to happen uh, going forward is we're going to see the integration and M&A of these piece parts come together. And, and I think that that then you make sure that you figure out 
which parts of the ecosystem you address, how do you bring them together? Um, you know, for us, we actually totally believe in the ecosystem. We're just, we're totally focused on how do you enable everyone to own their own future with generative design as part of the ecosystem versus here's the answer to generative design. I think that's what we've learned is we're going to drive the ecosystem, not drive the here's the total picture answer. And that's, I think that's what you learn from something like Katera, this, you know, great vision, great team, you know, um, timing may have been a little, remember what I said before, timing may have been a little early for them and, um, you know, tried to probably take on a lot and uh, you got to build a little test, a little bring the ecosystem together. So I think we're in a better place as a prop tech VC community today than ever before. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Um, Bill, moving to wrap up a little here, I, I think it's come, a, it's come through in the conversation today, certainly for me, that you've got a really interesting vantage point in this industry. You're, you're, at the, you're on the front line, as it were, right now. You're deeply engaged in it, but you're not of it in the way that some of your, your colleagues may be. I'd like to ask you what you see as the major currents that are going to impact the industry over the next five years or so. Well, I think the number one is um, everybody says it, nobody knows what it means. And I'll be honest, even I don't know exactly how this is going to play out. Uh, data analytics, machine learning are going to be the center point of value creation over the next 10 years. Uh, it isn't going to go as fast in the next two years as we think, but it's going to go much faster in the next 10 years than we think. So, but the part of it is we're just trying to figure out what the right balance is, what that is, how we get there. And I think everybody is got to figure out their strategy without overspending and coming up with, you know, unicorns that don't work, you know, or white elephants that, you know, don't work. They got to have a data analytics ML strategy. And out of that, they've got to jointly figure out the monetization model, you know, which doesn't mean you're selling it. It may mean it makes my current products more attractive. It, it makes my selling more attractive. It makes my customers happier. Those are all things you could do and really win in business using data and analytics. And I think everybody's got to get a stronger position in that area um, going forward. I think that so it's no surprise and everybody talks about it, but nobody's doing it, you know, kind of thing. Um, I think the second thing I see is I think this generative design, everybody is working on it. Everybody's got models and solvers and everybody is doing a lot of things, but it's all disconnected. So it's very, it's very stovepiped, incremental. And let's face it, you don't build, you know, an eight-story building without having everything done. The structure, the facade, the MEP, floor plates, apartment design, uh, parking spaces, uh, podiums, you know, you just think about all that complexity. So everybody is dealing with one individual piece. The real issue is, can we figure out how to come where all that comes together into a real integrated holistic capability? Because that's Nirvana. And I do believe that's where Nirvana is. Everybody can add their own value 
but it all works together seamlessly and and more integrated. That is, by the way, going to be analytics, AI, ML, cloud platform driven. And we're and the, the cloud technology is enabling us to do that at a speed and scale never before seen. I I'd call that out and say that's going to be the, the world. The last thing is I think you know I obviously deeply believe this that managing space in the future is not to be about managing space. It's about managing people. Space is interesting, but not interesting enough. What is most interesting is it's put the person at the center, put the patient at the center, put the fan at the center, put the employee at the center, put the shopper at the center, and then say, what do you do with space to make it more productive, more interesting, more fun, uh, you know, more enticing for that person? Because that's why we, that's why Amazon wins is they do that. They use their data to know more about you and to create experiences online that, you know, drive you there. That we just, if you think about the shopping experience, we don't have that for our physical environments. But if you had it, it may be more enticing than the online experience. But the reality is it's all going to come together as physical and digital. And that's when magic occurs. So I think, you know, it's data driven. It's generative design, ecosystem, platform driven. It's putting people at the center of decision making, which we all know is the right thing to do. But we, we often get all caught up in designing space, not designing space yeah. for people. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. But I guess that leads me to my final question. If really, how do you think it will play out? This is a, a little bit of a, a nerdy pastime for me is trying to guess exactly what path this change that we all hope uh, will occur will occur and, I, and i'm not talking here about 20 or 30 years away because that's the easy uh, answer here it's what is that path and i think i've heard you in in the latter part uh of of this interview outline a way that this new ecosystem can play together i think we have large initiatives like yourself uh, we have smaller initiatives. You, you spoke about the inevitable M&A process and integration. Uh, do I have that right, that, that some of these smaller players will aggregate around the larger players? Um, together, you'll find a way to, to integrate. Um, you know, th this is probably looking a little different from disruption that we've seen in other industries. Have I got that roughly right, Bill, or would you would you draw the distinction to something I've said there? Yeah, I think I, I think you're absolutely right. You know, I, I think in the other industries, the disruptor came in and there were losers in the ecosystem and in, in everything. But I think this is probably more akin to the automotive industry. If you think about it, the 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 automotive companies, the big ones are not going out of business. They're they're doing well. They're changing with it. Now, I do believe it was driven by a big disruptor like Tesla. And then you have a bunch of, you know, wannabe disruptors that followed along with Tesla that are, are providing niche products to also disrupt. What I think is going to change here, though, is, it, is we're not going to have that. I don't think we're going to have that property disruptor come out of nowhere and then it, like a Tesla 
What I do think it's going to be the leading companies, the leading investment and development firms. And again, you think about how Black uh, BlackRock really puts out sustainability and ESG and corporate governance as being important in the in the markets they serve, and how that has driven a change. I think it's going to be the big developers, the big investment houses, who are going to lead this change. They're going to see the value to solving the complexity problem. And they're going to start to want to lead the way in a more, let's say, controlled way rather than, you know, try to transform big. They're going to go build a little, test a little, integrate a little, you know, and try it out. And they're going to lead the way. And then they're going to start asking the designers who want to do this, by the way, to do it in this new way and provide them the digital outputs to make what they do more productive. We're going to see the suppliers and the construction firms. The construction firms will go along as long as they're asked to do it. But if they're not asked, they won't change. But if they're asked to do it, just like the architects and designers, they're going to do it because is they're going to see value if their customers want to do it. And then once they've done it, and they see value to their own productivity, that'll happen. I think the last thing is suppliers want this. So the big suppliers are ready to deliver this. The big suppliers want to see more offsite manufacturing. They, they want to manufacture products that out of the box provide more of this kit of parts. And I think you're going to see that, it, 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 but what I said is true. We're going to see big developers, investment houses having to ask for this stuff. And that includes government. The government is one of the biggest, so they have to get the regulation right. But if they don't ask for it, the, the onus cannot be on the architect, the, the, the engineering firm, the consulting firm, the construction company, the suppliers to carry the day. So that's, that's really, I think, your bellwether. Do is a, there a tipping point where enough of the leaders in the world are getting on this testing it out and driving in this direction because then it's going to go fast. And those leaders are going to, I think, going to get well rewarded through this. And, um, and so, yeah, so I certainly believe that because I came to Lend-Lease because I don't think it's going to be disrupted from somebody else. I think it's going to get disrupted by these shining lights in the world. Bill, that's a really great place to leave it. Uh, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. And I always feel like I learn an immense amount when we have these conversations. Uh, to our listeners, uh, notes and references will be added online to the show notes. Uh, I thank you for listening and hope to see you or speak to you again soon.